You're listening to TFM. Want to join in the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners' discussion group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field, and we'll look forward to seeing you there. Welcome to TFM's local watering hole, and I'm just one of your radical hosts, Matthew Rushing, and with me, as he is frequently these days, and I'm so excited that's the case, the ultra-radical Scott McClellan. How are you doing, Scott? Cowabunga, dudes. I'm totally tubular. Bodacious, man. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh, it just brings back such memories of uh, growing up in the late 80s and early 90s and saying stupid things like that. (laughs) Oh, doesn't it, though? And uh, being completely yes. like sincere and earnest as you yes. were saying it. Yes. Oh man, she's bodacious. Uh anyway, uh before we go down that road, uh, we are of course gonna be talking about Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Mutant Mayhem, and as we look to dive into that, uh just hit us up wherever you're listening to podcasts, you know, and subscribe. You know the drill. Of course, uh, give us star ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts. Spread the word. Follow us on social media at the 602 Club on Twitter, at the 602 Club TFM on Instagram, Facebook at facebook.com slash trackfm with the entire network, track.fm, where you can find all of the shows we're doing. And of course, with the listeners only discussion group called the Babel Conference on Facebook, you can join. Plus, you can go over to Patreon at patreon.com slash trackfm and become part of the team. So all of these podcasts keep coming to you each and every week. So I have a massive question for you because we're not that far apart in age. And so I'm kind of wondering where your turtle fandom began. You know, uh, was it the video game? Was it watching the cartoon on Saturday mornings? What was it that got you into Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles? Most definitely the origin would have been that original 1987 animated series. Like, that's where it all started. Now, I remember the 1987 series coming out and me watching that religiously. I own the VHS tapes. I watch those things on repeat, like nobody's business. Uh, Renting tapes from the movie gallery. Uh, and, And in that time, I... I remember experiencing one random issue of Eastman and Laird's original series and just being blown away by how different everything looked in that. But, but dude, I went, I went all in. Like, the introduction was the 1987 animated series, but then there was Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle Adventures, which was a comic book series published by Archie Comics, that was, I, I think, like, the first issue adapted, like, the five-part miniseries that starts the show. But then they mm-hmm. went off and did completely original stories. But the character designs followed the animated series mm-hmm. in, in a way. And so I was reading that. And then, of course, I know I was playing the original Ninja Turtles game on the NES uh, the arcade game, whenever I'd go to Showbiz Pizza, which is, you know, back in the day before it was Chuck oh, E. Yeah. Cheese. Oh, I remember Showbiz. Yes. Yeah. You know, you had that. You had the, I mean, the Ninja Turtles arcade game was the first one where you had four players. Like you could, you could have four of your friends all, and you could play all four turtles at the same time. And then of course, you know, the super, you know, then you get like the art, the port on the NES Actually, and here's the fun thing. When I finally got a Super Nintendo for Mm, Christmas. Yeah. My dad, because my dad didn't like to spend a lot of money. You know, we had things. We were upper, we were middle class, upper middle class. But that was also because my dad, like, we didn't just buy stuff. (laughs) Right. And so to get the, to get the Super Nintendo, I had to get the one that didn't come with Super Mario World and only came with one controller. But I still remember Christmas night after I got the Super Nintendo, we went to service merchandise. That's a blast. Oh, my gosh. I remember that, too. Yes. And we picked up a second controller 
And the one game I owned forever on the Super Nintendo was Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 4, Turtles in Time. Yes. Because they, they took the Turtles in Time arcade game and made a, funny enough, superior version of it for the Super <laughs> Nintendo. So, and, and then, of course, I collected all the toys. I had the Technodrome. I had all the Turtles. I got all the variant. I mean, dude, I was all in. Because you've also got to remember that when the cartoon came out, I was I was five. <laughs> I was five when that cartoon came out. And so I was like at the prime age mm-hmm. to have all the facts. Yeah. It's, uh, it's interesting for me because, you know, I remember the original cartoon coming out and getting to see some of that. You know, listeners know I grew up in a pretty conservative family, and so I didn't watch a lot of cartoons, but I was well aware of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Uh, And of course, you know, at that point, I'm eight, and so definitely aware of seeing the toys in the store and thinking they're so cool. And of course, you know, you've got uh, all of that going on. I I absolutely remember, you know, the movies coming out in the theaters. I did not grow up. Good story about that. The first movie. It came out opening day was my eighth birthday. Oh, nice. That was my birthday party was taking my friends to go see the first movie. Nice. On opening night. That's great. Because and then again, I, you know, I didn't see those movies, so I didn't grow up with them. And I actually didn't see them till much later in life. And and I have no nostalgia for them and I do not enjoy them like my wife does, who thinks they're great. Um, And but I remember the Turtles in Time game, you know, being at the arcade or being in a restaurant that had it and playing that. And of course, Super Nintendo playing it with friends and so the original cartoon and that game are the things that really kind of drove my fandom and, and what I enjoyed about the Turtles. And and then I remember in 97 they did the TMNT movie uh, that was computer animated, which to me I also enjoyed because – Actually, it, it, wasn't that 2003? Uh, no, it's 2007, yeah. Oh, 2007. You said 1997, so that's what confused me. Oh, did I? I don't know. My brain's going crazy. I mean, anyway, uh, but no. So, yeah, 2007, that came out, and I really enjoyed that. I thought it was a a very smart idea for doing uh, the Turtles. You know, I mean, you've got great voice cast, too, there with Chris Evans, Sarah Michelle Gellar. You had Patrick Stewart. uh, You know, the narration by Lawrence Fishburne was great. So uh, to me, I really enjoyed that. I thought that was the way to go. And then, of course, you know, unfortunately, we got the abominations that were the Michael Bay films, uh, and I, those did not work. I remember seeing the first one and just being completely turned off uh, by it. I just, still have it, never seen Out of the Shadows. You know, I don't think I have either, and I don't think I ever will. Oh, I will. I I, I, I will go back. <laughs> the Michael Bay produced movies, I saw the first one years later on you know streaming or cable or something like like something like that uh, and they were like okay this works this doesn't work for me and then uh so i've never actually watched out of the shadows but now now i'm kind of like dipping my toes back into turtle mania oh i know i'm gonna go back i'm gonna watch both those m- movies nice. kind of like i'm going back and i'm also because of my kids I'm trying to go back and catch mm-hmm. all the different animated series that I never watched. Or right. I watched like a little mm-hmm. bit here, okay. a little bit there. Because you know what got my kids hooked on it was this most recent animated incarnation, Rise of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. That was the one that hooked my boys. Yeah, nice. No, that's great. You know, so, I mean, it's just something that's been around uh, for so Almost 40 long. years. Yeah, exactly. And so uh, I I think I, I kind of wanted to ask, too, like with that fandom, then it seems like coming into this one it sounds like you were pretty excited to to hit up, you know, Mutant Mayhem. Oh, very much so. I, I, I was excited to hit it up because it was the 
Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 3 was the last Turtles movie I saw in theaters. Because the animated movie, the 2007 movie, I didn't see in theaters. I didn't catch the Michael Bay movies in theaters. So I hadn't gone to the theaters to watch Ninja Turtles since the third one. And then with my boys having discovered Rise of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles between Netflix and Paramount Plus, they were excited to, like, they had become Ninja Turtle fans through that. And then I had introduced them through the video games because when Shredder's Revenge came out, like, last year, I heavily manipulated my nine-year-old into using his allowance to buy that because you want this don't you buddy yeah i did i pulled that as a dad and i'm not ashamed at all and then for my seven-year-old i got him the cowabunga collection for his switch which is the nice which is like 16 different games half of which i never played because they were like on they were either after my time as a gamer at that stage in my life or on systems I never owned. So with them getting into it through Rise and the video games, and then I was able to then look at Mutant Mayhem as another opportunity for, this is great. I get to take my boys and we get to now enjoy this thing together because it was kind of like seeing the super mario brothers movie we each experienced this franchise from two literally opposite ends of experience you know so like with the super mario brothers movie being so cool because there was references that my wife and i got because it was like the old games and then there was new stuff that my boys were explaining to me where it came from I felt like Mutant Mayhem was another kind of opportunity for that cross-generational experience of the same fandom. Yeah, no, I completely get that. And I think, uh, you know, just for myself coming into it, I was excited because, you know, having seen the, the 2007 animated film, you know, to me it just made sense actually that Animation is where Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles really belongs. It just makes sense there, I think. Um, And the fact that it seemed like this film was kind of taking a cue from Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse, where, you know, you're playing with animation as a medium and really trying to craft something that has a very unique look and a, and a, and a, and a feel to it. Um, you know, uh, Disney actually employed this uh, process with its films, uh, you know, in the nineties where it specifically started to mimic uh, the things that they were telling their story about, you know, like uh, Hercules is a, is a great example of that using kind of Greek shapes and iconography to really uh, bring that animation to life and to set it apart, right? And and to make it feel like the type of story you're telling. And so here, I think that was the thing that really excited me um, about that. I, I felt like it's almost like, to me, the turtles had returned home to where they belong, which is in animation. And so I was I was really excited to actually get a chance to see that. And so... What I'm interested then, too, because you're such an aficionado of just the turtles themselves, I'm interested in the way in which, you know, we kind of, we create a turtle history here that is different than some of the other mediums have portrayed the origin story of the turtles and kind of craft, uh, you know, um, not necessarily completely new but there's a there's a lot of stuff in here that is is different and so how did you feel about you know like the techno cosmic research institute the idea of you know this scientist you know trying to create his own mutant animal family uh and then you know of course just the way in which Splinter finds these four baby turtles wandering around an ooze that's you know accidentally got lost in the sewers you know what 
It was different and it didn't bother me because I have learned a valuable lesson, even through just Ninja Turtles, that every iteration has kind of done something radically or on a small scale different than the iteration before it. So much so that I would watch a movie or a series and go, well, that's not the way it's supposed to be until I realized. But the way I experienced it wasn't the way it was supposed to be. You know, for instance, I grew up with the 1987 animated series. I see the 1990 live action movie and several things are different. But then I go back and read the original comic book from 1984. And I'm like, oh, that's because the 1987 cartoon was different than the comic book. And the 90s movie was doing it like the comic book did it. And, and so it, I got to this point that I was just like, no, just do your thing. Like, <laughs> because everything is going to be somebody's first one. And then, like, even, even my 10-year-old was arguing with me about the fact that he's a rat who gets mutated. He's not a man who gets turned into a man rat. I said, well, nobody. That's the way it's originally supposed to be. And, and and so it it was kind of fun even having that conversation with my ten year old and going no this story gets changed a lot it's it's fine which is really funny because you know if you watch Rise of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles oh that thing is radically different they, I mean they have mystical weapon powers in that cartoon series so it it was fine for me because it was paying homage. To, like like TCRI is like TGRI from Secret of the Ooze, the second live action movie. And, you know, Splinter originally being a rat is like the comic in like the 90s movie. And it was like they, it was like Seth Rogen and uh, it was Evan Goldberg is his producing partner. It, it, it's like they did. It's like they, they looked at the history of Ninja Turtles and went, we're going to take a little bit of here and we're going to take a little bit of there and we're just going to throw it in a blender basically in a way of saying everyone is going to recognize something no matter what your turtle fandom comes from there's going to be something in here that's different for you but then there's something that's going to be recognizable for you and i think that was a genius move and that you kind of made something for everyone because there was there was something from every version that you could have experienced in your life. Right. Yeah, you know, I, I think you know, one of the things that Teenage Mutant Ninja Trolls, and I think you rightly pointed out the fandom and just the way in which the stories have kind of rearranged things and maybe added new things or done things differently, it's kind of taught us that, like you said, each film adaptation or each comic book or you know maybe even video game or animated series it needs to create its its version of the teenage mutant ninja turtles which can borrow from what you've had previously um but also can maybe do something new and put it all together and i think as long as that story then actually services the story that you are telling that's what matters and you know i think one of the things that i was impressed by with the way in which they changed the history here and or utilized different pieces of the history from you know around uh the teenage mutant ninja troll fandom is that each one of those things worked with the thematic elements to which they're using to tell this story. Like all of them play into uh, the way in which this film then lays itself out and each of the character arcs that we're going to get in the story. Uh, and so they make those choices and I think they end up really working. Um, and so I didn't really have a problem with the idea um, that any of these things, you know, may be a conglomeration of, of things that have been done in previous films or just, you know, making something up for this film because it's what works for telling this story of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. 
Oh, absolutely. I mean, it all holds together together tonally and thematically. Like the idea of the the families. You basically have two families that have a MLK versus Malcolm X or a Charles Xavier versus Magneto kind of mentality of how do we deal with a world that we that fears us and won't accept us, but did it in a way that, well, yes, I've heard this story before. I've heard this lesson before. I they they went different ways with it. And it still felt fresh and energetic, and mm-hmm. I didn't feel bogged down by it. Yeah, no, I completely agree. Which I think really leads us into to kind of talking about you know this this whole movie is full of motivations, and you know I think um, that's something that uh, there and that every you know kind of group or character has specific motivations for doing what they want to do and. You know, one of the biggest and, and and the catalyst for the entire film is, you know, Stockman, this scientist who's kind of gone rogue, who feels so isolated that he wants to create a family of mutants so he will not feel alone, which is an incredibly interesting idea of the fact that, you know, somebody would feel so isolated that they want to turn bugs and or you know uh warthogs rhinoceros war- yeah exactly into family and uh and that they feel so uncared about that they feel like they have to literally create their own family and to me that was a really interesting thing because you know you kind of also see i think that a little bit with you know what you get with with a lot of the other characters being driven about this idea of you know feeling set apart and different and you know not cared for not loved and all of these things bring them to to do the things that they are doing and you know stockman is just the one who kind of sets all of this in motion because of his intense loneliness it he you know, he's kind of responsible for everything else we get. Well, and it's so teenager. I mm-hmm. mean, one of the yeah. things that the the creators talked about top to bottom was the, 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 the mantra for this movie was teenage energy. Right. And dear God, did you just not des- describe the life and trials of every angsty freaking hormonal teenager on planet earth. I mean, the whole idea, the whole concept of a, of a chosen family or a found family and feeling isolated and lonely and looking for acceptance and belonging. Hello, teenage years. Like that's, that's, it's like you took the teenage experience and 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 just extrapolated it into everyone's motivation in this movie, whether they're a teenager or not. Well, and that's uh, I mean, like you said too, this kind of goes to a lot of different characters because the motivation for Splinter is that you know humans have treated him badly; he has a fear of them because because of the way they've been treated and then of course finding these turtles and then becoming you know uh, a a sentient rat and then you know you have these uh, sentient turtles that he feels responsible for raising and then what happens to them when they try to go out into the real world Uh, you know everything then he does for him the motivation is fear and, and and desire just they he wants to survive and of course you know that's a difficult thing for then teenagers to to want to you know live in a world where they're just surviving surviving isn't enough that's not really living you know and trying to be you know splinters trying to make them okay with that uh and you know he he uses uh the 
kung fu movies and tapes and trainings to help his boys be ready to face uh, face off in battle if they ever need to try and save themselves. Uh, and he tries to keep them happy down there. And and yet again, everything he's doing is it you know for him the motivation is fear, fear of rejection, but also fear of what people might do to him and his sons if they ever find out about them. Right. And and so and he chooses and he chooses to isolate himself. It's 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 about if we hide, if we just don't interact with them, we'll be fine. And yeah, that's not gonna work with four teenage boys. Yeah, exactly. Um and and then on the other side, I mean the motivation of Superfly who has been rejected and longs for acceptance. And so he feels that the only way to do that is to destroy humans and create more mutants so that he will be accepted. Basically forcing people to accept him. Which, it, you know... It's not even I, forcing people to accept him. It's making a world where we'll be accepted because we're we are the world. <laughs> we are the only ones who exist, yeah. Well, and, and but I I really and I definitely agree with what you said, but I think his design and desire is one that I kind of see throughout the world today, right? I want to force people to accept me or they shouldn't exist. You either accept me or I don't think that you should be allowed to talk. I don't think that you should be allowed to basically breathe if you don't accept who I am and that that that's so dangerous you know and I thought it was really interesting for this movie to have a character who just wants to wipe off the face of the earth everybody that doesn't accept him and create people who will accept him because they'll be just like him well and then also I know we're I'm skipping to the end but then to also have that moment where you know super flies yelling at the other mutants going if you don't do what I say, then you're not going to survive. And Splinter realizing, crap, that's exactly what I've been saying for the last 15 years. Like that that moment where Splinter and, realizes that he's just the other side of Superfly. And that being his, him looking at his own motivation and then realizing, oh. That's what that looks like. I thought it was a great turning point for Splinter in the movie. Yeah, no, I I agree with you 100% because, uh, like you said, what we see in the way in which these themes kind of build together is the fact that, yeah, they are two sides of the same coin. And, you know, uh, to force people into accepting something never really works because it, it... we all reject that out of hand. We we don't want to be forced to do anything. And, you know, it's so much better, too, when we can get people to kind of see our point of view because we're willing to put ourselves out there and persuade them in a way that helps them see our point of view. And, yeah, maybe people aren't always going to completely be on the same page 100% of the time. But that's, you know, it's kind of what it means to be human, right? Like, there's, nobody's going to agree with us 100% of the time, all the time. So, I it's just, I find that so fascinating to me, the the way in which, you know, this plays itself out. Uh, and so, and then of course, you know, you, you end up with April and the turtles, I think kind of being in very similar places where, you know, they want people to accept them beyond what they've seen, right? You know, April, she's had this very embarrassing moment where she's puke girl. Yeah. Puke girl. Uh, and then of course the, the, the boys wanting people to be able to see past the outside, right? And what's on the inside. And that they're more than meets the eye, right? Uh, And I I think 
again, what's kind of great about the entire movie is the way in which they, I think they do a great job of making sure, okay, the way that we're telling the story is we were talking about all of these characters and all of these thematic elements, they play off of each other very well because we've put together these, these juxtapositions and characters and different sides of the coin so that we can kind of play around with these major themes but it all feels very cohesive by the end um and and i think that's really good writing actually well no because you got the younger characters you've got the turtles and you've got april you know they're the ones that are like we we're still open we still want the we still want to be accepted we still want to be a part of the world you know they have that sort of youthful energy while you know it, it's the older ones that's like the world's never going to accept us, so we might as well just hide. Or the other side being, the world's never going to accept us, so we might as well just wipe them all out. You know, it's because the, the two, the two, it's like the older generation has pretty much said, screw the world. So that means either ignore it or attack it. And it's these younger characters who are like, no, we still want to be a part of the world. You know, we're, we're not scared of the world. We we want we want to join the world. We want we haven't had a chance to live and be part of this world yet. And then we just want them to like, hey, let me can we play too? No, I think that's really well said. I mean, uh, to me I I think one of the things that you just pointed out is is the way in which I do think this shows you know, cuz Seth Rogen is not young anymore, right? Oh no, he's 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 my age. Yeah. He's 41. <laughs> yeah, and and so I think the beauty of this is the way in which you can kind of see him playing both sides of the spectrum, right? He remembers I think what it was like to be younger, but he also now knows what it's like to be older and in in seeing both sides of 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 the spectrum. I think it it really works. And and that's one of the things, you know, I, I really enjoyed about the film is like, you know, we learn what it means to be turtle heroes when the boys realize that this is not about the ends justifying the means kind of thing. We're not doing this so people will accept us. We're doing this because it's the right thing to do. We're, that a true hero means being willing to self-sacrifice even if people don't accept us in the end. Because it's the right thing to do. And, you know, that's a very classic message, but I think it's still a really important one, even in our day and age, because I think a lot of people don't think like that anymore. This idea that I'm going to do the right thing regardless of whether or not people, like, look at me different afterwards, because it's just the right thing to do. What And it's also the turtles being such, you know... A modern day teenager, like a Gen Zer, like like you know, they get to that point where it's like April film us doing really cool yeah. crap, and and April's like, I don't think this was the point, guys. Because yeah, a lot of the things like, you do this... are actually dumb. Yeah, that, that was yeah. such a great scene. Like it really got the point across, and it's like, yeah, that sounds like a teenager to well, me. Well, and it, and and I think that. I love you bringing that up because the boys truly do go from people who it's like, you know, they spend all this time just kind of filming themselves. Look how cool it is what we're doing. And then it like to utilize the skills that we've honed and been given for the betterment and the benefit of other people is such a better use of that time than trying to get people to like us. Right. Basically, it's like the movie saying. Who cares whether people like you on Instagram and give you likes? Are you are you actually doing something of value that's helping people? And are you willing to sacrifice yourself to do that, you know? And and I think, you know, that's a that's a pretty poignant message for, you know, the the next generation, I think, uh to be reminded of. It it's not about these superficial things. Uh, and the movie, I think, too, kind of shows as well that it isn't so much what other people think of you. It's what you think of you. 
And are you able to look at yourself in the mirror and 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 face yourself and because you did the right thing regardless of the cost um or are you going to sell out and sacrifice all of that to get whatever it is you want and are you willing to hurt anybody at any cost to get what you want like superfly right right or or do you or do you appreciate what you have like it's a silly little moment but i think once again when you talk about the fact that thematically this movie really holds together it it's like Donnie at the beginning of the movie saying, "Why did I have to get the big stick?" Like like you know like, like he's complaining about his bow staff, and then there's that moment where they can stop the bad guys because it, it, when Mikey is like looking at the brake pedal, going, "If I only had something yeah. long and strong and strong," and Donnie goes, "Like a big stick," <laughs> and, it, and it's like, but once again, it's like this little moment that goes, "Oh, wait a minute." Me having the big stick is actually something that could become useful right. and helpful. And if I didn't have the big stick, we wouldn't be able to do anything yes. right now. Absolutely. I, I wanted to ask you about, you know, we talked at the beginning about the animation. Uh, and specifically here, the animation choices that they made were they wanted this to mimic the doodles that teenagers do on their homework paper. Really leaning into the fact that this is a movie about teenagers. And so uh, how do you feel like that worked? Do you feel like that they made the right choice and that um, it didn't get too weird then in that look? Oh, no, no, not at all. And if it got weird, it was because it should have been weird. Like, like by the time Superfly is, you know, the kaiju mutated beast stomping through the streets of New York. No, that's exactly should be as weird as that was. And like, because that's what a teenager would come up with in their brain is like, this would be a cool kaiju creature to have. I thought the animation was gorgeous. I thought it was stunning. In my opinion, it is it's the selling point for this movie. Like, it, it, like when I look at my own review, it's like the one thing I can do through the entire runtime is just gawk out the screen and go, this looks amazing. I am so happy as an animation fan for a guy who loves watching cartoons. Like, I love cartoons. I love animation. And I get picky about my animation. And I love seeing how all these studios, like Sony with Spider-Verse, or what DreamWorks did with, like, uh, Puss in Boots, The Last Wish, uh, or to the point now that, you know, with Nickelodeon doing this with Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, I just love the swings people are taking. Because, you know, you look at who used to be the animation giant, you know, Disney and then eventually Pixar. And all they're doing is more of the same. Yeah. Like, they're not taking swings anymore. They're just doing the same. They have a house style and they're sticking with it. And all the, and I just love seeing how these other movies are going, no, let's let's break some barriers. Let's shatter some ceilings. Let's 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 not just think outside the box let's torch the box set it on fire and move to a completely different location and so i loved the animation watching the movie because i got i watched this wednesday opening night you know and i didn't see the video talking about the doodle idea until later but i picked up on it anyway while watching the movie because like the car would be driving and there'd be like the lines behind it, like showing the motion of the car or like or the squiggly lines coming out of like the lights blinking. And I and it's just like I just wanted to like just stare at the screen and go, there is so much going on and I can't see everything, but I want to. Yeah. No, I I couldn't agree with you more. You know, I think to me. This was one of those things where, and I, I think you bringing up the fact that, because I, I was listening to another podcast, some friends were talking about uh, on uh, House Lights that John Mills does with some friends over there in the Nerd Party, 
Uh, and they were talking about Incredibles 2 and the way in which, you know, so much had changed in 13 years since they had done the first one. And that what they were doing basically wasn't all that special anymore because it just felt like things that you had already seen. And I think that's really interesting to me because there have been these animation studios that I think have truly realized that animation is meant to be an actual art form, right? Like, that's what Walt Disney created back when he did Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, and then when they did Sleeping Beauty. I mean, if you've ever seen Sleeping Beauty in 70mm, it's just absolutely gorgeous. And, and the work of art that they put up on screen, they actually never uh, were able to outdo themselves. Uh, that That movie... They put so much work into basically creating art with every single scene that they had to change the way that they did uh, Disney films from then on because they just couldn't do that anymore. Uh, it took too much time. But, I, you know, I think, again, just stretching what it means to be an animated movie, making it feel like art is so smart. And I didn't mean for that to rhyme. So, you know, I, I loved it. I'm right there with you. I think that this was an inspired choice. I think because the animation itself leaned into exactly what this movie wanted to do, which is that this is a movie about four teenage boys learning what it means to become men in some ways, what it means to like start that transition towards manhood, towards responsibility, towards, but to have the art reflect who they are right now is, you know, just screw up guys who happen to be Ninja Turtles is perfect. And so it's one of those things where I just absolutely love the thought process behind it. I love the fact that they they swung for the fences. And I think when it comes to the animation style here, uh, they got exactly what they needed. And I think other animation studios have been put on notice. I think even animation studios like Illumination have absolutely been put on notice because their films in many ways have kind of continued that trend of like, we've gotten to this point and now we just kind of keep doing the same thing over and over again. Uh, nothing looks all that different. I think Sony and then, of course, Paramount Nickelodeon with this film are are really setting a standard uh, that other films are going to have to live up to, which is great. Uh, so I absolutely love this. Um, and, and then, you know, on top of that, I think that with the voice cast, them casting actual teenage boys to be teenage boys so that it can feel real and we can deal with actual teenage issues and it feel very authentic. You know, especially I think of that wonderful scene of, of Leonardo as he's watching the couple at the movies, you know, and just the way it's animated and everything about it. You can feel his desire for a life outside the shell, you know, that he wishes he could come out of his shell and be a normal person, get to experience those things, right? Um, the, the way the boys interacted, them talking over each other because they're all recording at the same time and like everything about that choice was perfect for this film. You know what? I This seems so silly, especially considering how long I've been a Ninja Turtles fan. But it wasn't until this movie that it really clicked with my brain that I went, they're 15. They're supposed to be 15. Yes. They have never felt 15 before. I mean, I just watched tonight, I watched the 1990, the first live action movie with my boys because they were begging me to watch that one. Because they were like, oh, this is the first one, right, Daddy? You know, you, you saw this one. And I realized, oh, yeah, they act silly. And I could see some 
15-year-old isms in them, but they're still huge and tall and, you know, they're voiced by adults. Right. And this is the first movie that really made me go, yeah, they're 15. They're supposed to be this silly. They're supposed to be this mm-hmm. immature. Yeah. Because they're 15. <laughs> yeah. No, I I couldn't agree with you more, you know, and I think, you know, using Jackie Chan as Splinter uh, was was a great choice, uh, mainly because it's Jackie Chan. He has a very wonderfully recognizable voice, but then, of course, giving him a fight sequence that's so reminiscent of the fight sequences that he used to do in live action was phenomenal. Uh, and, and in all honesty, like, I think the entire voice cast here, besides the boys, is just phenomenal. Like, everybody does, I think, a very good job of bringing to life their roles, whether small or large. And I, I mean, I don't have any complaints whatsoever about the choices they made for the voice cast. I, you know, and I'm... I, I don't mean to be a devil's advocate when it comes to this part. I, and I think I I think what happened to me, because I've only seen the movie once. I saw it that one night, and I really want to go back and watch it again. I had some theatrical experiences uh, that outside of the film itself that I feel like colored my viewing experience, if you know oh, what sure. I mean. yeah. And... I think the only thing that hit me was they talked about the voice cast for this film. And I felt like it was another one of those situations that sometimes these big time feature animated films get into, which is you cast all these names, you cast all these stars. And I I would have been hard pressed to tell you, oh, that's who voiced that. Because you said big and small, but I felt like a lot of those side characters really didn't get a lot of time. And so it just felt like, why did you have to go for the big names when they really didn't have that much yeah. to do? I can see that. Yeah. So that that's going to be my I'm, and that has nothing to do about their performances right. as the characters. Um, the only one I'll say is Seth Rogen as bebop it's like wow that just yes, sounds like seth yeah. rogan like seth rogan is one of those voices i felt the same way when he was donkey kong in the super mario brothers movie he just sounds like seth rogan like it it kind of takes yeah. me out of the movie because it's like that's seth rogan everyone else i mean john cena is Rocksteady, or uh you know paul rudd is mondo gecko or, or like any of these other characters or even characters that i was looking forward to like gina Carr esposito as baxter stockman i was really looking mm-hmm. forward to that and then it was like Oh, he's done it for the first five minutes? Yeah. Dang it. You know, there were some of those reactions where you sold me on the fact you got all these actors. And then I felt like they were a little underutilized. Mm -hmm. And and that's just going to be like my – if I'm going to share my own subjective criticism, that's the only place I go when it comes to the voice cast is, wow, you Mm -hmm. cast some amazing actors and then you didn't really use them that much. Yeah, I feel like – and I see definitely what you're saying, and I'm kind of wondering since a lot of those voice actors' characters survived, then the goal of casting them was, you know, thinking long-term because they've already greenlit a sequel to this. And so that you, you know, can then do something more with them possibly in the future. I think, you know, to me, the biggest thing that I want with any voice cast, no matter who it is, is that you don't really detract from the character you're playing. And I didn't feel like, you know, you've got all these big names and I didn't really feel like anybody was kind of detracting from who they are. You know, I, I think, like you said, Seth Rogen being Bebop. Yeah, he's just kind of being in some ways uh, a goofier version of Seth Rogen. But that works. You know, I mean, for the character, I mean, you know, you're playing a character who's not known for his smarts and everything. So I think it 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 fit. Um, I, I think the most important thing here and what they nailed was the relationship between the boys and and casting them as teenagers is really what makes the film work in, in a way that. And one other thing technically that they did, and this is something that I've appreciated 
ever since I learned about this, since back to like Batman the Animated Series, what Andrea Romano would do as the as the voice director on that series was they got the voice actors together yes. in the yes. same room so they could yes. play off each other. Y'all, I can tell the difference when I watch an animated feature between, yeah, you just recorded those lines by yourself in isolation and they've right. cut them together. And no, y'all were in the room together yes. yeah, playing that scene. And that totally comes across in this movie. No, I, I 100% agree with you. You know, I know uh, for a lot of the Clone Wars, that's one of the things that they would do is they would all be in the same room together when they're recording and it it creates that wonderful synergy between the characters and the actors so they're feeding off one another. And so, no, I 100% agree with you. I think that's something that just absolutely works. And so... um. I wanted to I wanted to ask you about the music in the film. One of the things is that the soundtrack is done by Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross. And of course, we have a bunch of needle drops that happen throughout the, the film. And so I wanted to ask you kind of how that worked, because, you know, music has always been an important part of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, uh, their theme song and, and whatnot. And so. Vanilla, yeah, vanilla ice, ice is yes. very memorable. Did I'm this not work lie. for you? Did did you feel like it absolutely it absolutely worked for me? I loved this score. The needle drops worked. I didn't even recognize all the needle drops. Like they weren't. I mean they they were they were from genres of music that maybe exactly weren't my cup of tea. But it didn't matter because they fit the movie they were in, and the score was so moody and evocative and it just it just works so well i love these composers i i love them so much like look at their filmography and it's just i still remember the first movie they scored that i went i see you like like their names popped out to me because they did david fincher's the girl with the dragon tattoo and they did the social network, and I mean, they've done a bunch of stuff. Oh, they did a bunch. Of, they did. I think they did Gone Girl because, like, they they basically became like Fincher's composers for like a stretch, and then you know they did Soul with Pixar, and that score was gorgeous in that movie. And uh, so I, when you told me they were scoring the movie, like you already had me there, and then to hear what the work they actually turned in i thought it was fabulous i think that the score works great for the film which you know not every score for me has to be one that i would want to listen necessarily necessarily to outside the film this is not one that i'm gonna like just pop on but inside the film perfectly works and and so that was good for me uh and and then you know this, I think the thing that the music did is it felt reminiscent of the boys that are in the film as the turtles, right? Yes. The type of music that they would be listening to, the things that they would enjoy. Uh, and so I thought all of it works for the movie and that they did a good job with, with picking that. I do wish that there was a score theme that was more resonant like more pronounced um maybe playing off some of the old turtle themes or whatever would have been nice for me um that's not really present in, in the film that i could hear and so i was kind of hoping for that but otherwise i think all of it works for the movie and they they did a good job no and, and to your point th and and to your point though but those composers are of this school that we're in right now. Some might call it like the Hans Zimmer school, uh, you know, where we don't get themes. We get mood. We get tone. We, 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 we feel things as we watch it, but we don't get melodic, hummable themes. And 
I agree with you, but like we said, though, it works for them. Like, you don't even think about it while you're watching the movie because it's all a piece. And so it, 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 it fit in the project that it was made for. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. I, I think you're absolutely right of, of you know, the, the type of music and composing that's happening here. I think that I I I think the film could have benefited from having a little bit more thematic resonance. But otherwise, you know, again, I think everything works with inside the film, which is exactly what you need, right? So I'm really fascinated to kind of see, you know, a, a lot of what we've talked about, I feel like has been just praise for the film. So where do you come down on your ratings for Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Mutant Mayhem? Okay, so this is weird for me because I enjoy so much about the movie. But when it was said and done, and and, I, and this is why I feel like I need to watch the movie again, because like I said, I was I was dealing with outside factors that I don't know whether they affected my mood while I was watching the movie or not because I originally ended up giving this movie uh three and a half slices of pizza out of five like which seems low for how much I've spoken glowingly of the movie because I love the music I love the animation I think the teenager energy nails it it's silly though, but it's but silly works. I think it's one of those things where it's silly. My boy, my boys who are ten and seven loved it, and I just thought, okay, some of the goofiness, some of the silliness, it's perfect for what the movie is. I'm just a little too old for it now, <laughs> you know. And so I feel like, and then and then I felt like some of those supporting characters got a little underdeveloped, in my opinion. Like I would have. If you're gonna have that many characters, you're just you you just run the risk of they don't all get fully rounded by the film, and and this is gonna be the dad in me. I and it's rated PG, so they can they can do this with the rating, but there were also just a few too many cuss words in the movie. <laughs> it bothered my ten year old; like he wouldn't let it go, and a lot of it came from Ice Cube's Superfly, you know. You know, just like going, you remember this is a kid's movie, right. right? Like, you've obviously written this. You like it is, and I'm not saying that because it's animated. I'm saying like tonally, this is a kid's movie. Like, you're playing to kid humor with a lot of this. Like, Puke Girl is total. Like, oh god, can this place stop? Like, I've had enough of this right now. So there were just certain things that like. I really, I really feel like I need to watch it again because right now it's like it's three and a half. Like what they do, they do great. And then there's just some other stuff in it that's like, oh, that's just fine. It was fun. But it's not like, I guess what I consider like a four or a five film. I just felt like three and a half. Right. Which is like what I gave the Super Mario Brothers movie. I gave that one a three and a half because it was like, it was good. It was great. I actually think this one took bigger swings than the Super Mario Brothers movie. So that's why, even as I talk, I was like, man, do I really need to adjust my rating up to a four? Or is it really more like a 3.75? Right. And, you know, no one lets me do that on rating apps. Yeah, I, it's interesting because I, I fall into the same place as you. I think I think the thing is that the, is that the movie is good and, and it's definitely above average, right? Uh, and I enjoyed it. I had fun with it. But I think, you know, one of the things that, you know, Into the Spider-Verse did is I think really raised the bar for what animated films can be. And I think that this one, like you said, there's maybe just a little bit of silliness to it that I wish maybe there had been a slight more seriousness to some of it uh, to really kind of bring home some of those themes even better, uh, like we talked about, and to really drive those home. 
But in the end, it's just, it's also I'm in this place where it's like, yeah, I'm going to give it three and a half out of five puke girls. But that's a good rating. It's not like it's a bad rating. Uh, and I still think it's not a bad should, movie. No, it's not. No, not at all. And I still think people should see it because it's a lot of fun. And, and it is really kind of one of those movies where you can just go to the movies. You're going to have a good time. You're going to laugh. You're going to enjoy it. And you're going to come out and you'll be like, that was fun. There's nothing wrong with that. So I, I think everybody should enjoy going to see this film. Can we talk about the mid credit scene? Oh, yeah. Setting up uh, the next uh, the next film. Absolutely. So what did you think about the the way in which the mid credit scene sets up the next movie? Well, one, I love the fact that with the movie in spoiler alert, by the way, because we're totally going to spoil the mid credit scene right now. Um, I love the way that because the movie ends with the turtles going to high school. I love the fact that we actually get to see them in high school. I love being able to see, oh, yeah, Donnie goes with the computer geeks. Raph joins the wrestling team. Mikey goes to improv class. You know, I, li- I like the fact that I got to see that they were in high school and what they were doing. But then TCRI is still around. Like, TCRI didn't just go away when they escaped, you know, the milking machine and uh, defeated Superfly. And then, like any Turtles fan, it's like, okay, when's Shredder showing up? (laughs) But it makes it interesting to me because they've completely changed the origin story, like when it comes to the Turtles and Splinter specifically. So I'm going to be really curious to see how Shredder fits in in this iteration when you don't have the backstory to connect everybody. No, I was uh, right there with you in that sense. I thought the same thing. I was like, okay, so I wonder how they're going to connect this. And and I and I also kind of had the feeling like they probably are going to connect things somehow. They just might do it in a in a more in a unique way for, you know, this universe. Uh, and so that they're creating, which I'm totally fine with, you know, and I also kind of enjoyed the fact that this film didn't immediately jump to Shredder. Yes. You know, I, I think that was, a because in some ways it's like, if you can win people over with this, like then kind of giving them the promise of Shredder in the next film is the way in which you truly set up the sequel <laughs> and to be successful because people are going to want to see that. Well, it's kind of like, you know, I and, I, and I'm not the first person who said this, so I'm, I'm not taking any kind of originality credit, but it's kind of like what Nolan did with the Dark Knight trilogy. Joker didn't show up till the second movie. You know, it's, it, it's like he started off with like Scarecrow and the League of Shadows. We got to Joker eventually. And so I'm looking forward to see what they do with Shredder. But you know what I would be even more excited for in this iteration is, oh, my God, what they could do with, like, Krang and the Technodrome and Dimension X in this universe. It's like, show me what that looks like. Yeah, I think that this movie has really set itself up to allow us to be able to have a couple of different sequels for this movie, you know, and to do it well. And I'm excited to see that happen. And so with with all that said, Scott, you know, if people wanted to catch up with you, see what else you've got going on these days, where would they find you? Well, you can find me on X, the app formerly known as Twitter, <laughs> at ScottDC27. You can follow my podcast, the DC Squadcast, wherever podcasts can be found. We're on Vero, Facebook, and YouTube with the entire network of shows at squadcastmedia.com. And then every Sunday night live at 9 p.m. Central Time over at the Film Junkie YouTube channel, you can catch me and my co-host Dave as we talk the DC Fanimated stream where we are discussing episode by episode every episode of the DC Animated Universe. We are currently wrapping up season one of Superman the Animated Series. 
And that means that we're about to get into this really weird place where we're going to be jumping back and forth between Season 2 of Superman the Animated Series and the third and final season of Batman the Animated Series. That is awesome. So I hope everybody will check all of those out. Definitely worth your time. Uh, you can find me all over social media under the name MattRushing02. Uh, of course, you could find me here on the network outside the 602 Club doing the Orb, Literary Treks, Warp 5, Saddle Up, and the Artificial Tango. Then you'll find me on the Nerd Party Network with two shows. One is completed called Owl Post. Did that with Drea Kaufman as we talked through every single chapter of the Harry Potter series. And then Aggressive Negotiations with John Mills as we talk about Star Wars every week. But thank you so much for joining us. Cowabunga, dude. <laughs> 